I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. As a member of the House Armed Services Committee, Florida Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy has her eyes on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. As a member of the January 6th Select Committee, Murphy is getting a bird's-eye view at the effort to overturn the 2020 election. As a former refugee, she and her family fled Vietnam in the 1970s when she was six months old. The threats to democracy both represent are front of mind. Autocratic forces are on the march in the world today. And as Americans, we need to stand up and defend democracy, whether that is overseas or here at home. You have to understand that I came from a country that was a democracy until it wasn't. In this conversation, first recorded on March 2nd for Washington Post Live, Murphy also talks about her decision not to seek re-election and her advice to fellow Democrats about how to hang on to their majority in the midterm elections. Joining me now is Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy of Florida. Welcome to Capehart on Washington Post Live. It's so great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Sure. So since late last month, Congresswoman, we've watched Russia invade Ukraine, sending hundreds of thousands of people streaming into neighboring countries to flee the violence. I would love your reflections on on what you're seeing, not only as a member of Congress, member of the Armed Services Committee, but also as a refugee yourself. You grew up here in the Washington area, but your parents fled Vietnam in the late 70s when you were six months old, just six months old. Uh, The boat you, you all were on ran out of fuel, but you were rescued by a U.S. Navy vessel. Do I have that right? And I would and talk about what um, your your story, how that informs what you're watching and how you're responding to what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, so let me just first say that my heart is just breaking for the Ukrainian people. And I am also just incredibly inspired by their courage. It's not the exact same kind of parallel because I, came from a country, Vietnam was, uh, you know, not uh, overrun by um, outside invaders the way that Ukraine is facing um, an unprovoked a uh, aggression by Russia. Um, but when I look at these images of women and children and families fleeing violence, it reminds me of the stories that I grew up with in my own home of my parents talking about living in a war-torn country and worrying about the future for their children, um, wanting what we as all parents want, which is simply for our children to have a better life than the one that we had. Um, it, because they didn't feel like they could have that in Vietnam as a communist government was taking over and persecuting um, its own people, my parents decided that they'd take their chances at sea um, rather than to live on in darkness uh, in this country where uh, they were being oppressed and that their children wouldn't have a bright future. And so you're correct. We uh, set off by boat when I was just six months old and ran out of fuel. Um, And there we were dangerously adrift when the U.S. Navy came upon our ship and uh, refueled us, resupplied us, and allowed us to make it to a Malaysian refugee camp. And then from there, Lutheran Church relocated us to Virginia. And so as I watched, 
these um, images, it resonates deeply uh, with me from a personal perspective. But from a professional perspective, I think it's so important that America stand up and stand beside these freedom-loving people who are trying to defend their country against this naked aggression. Um, and you know, they have a right to their sovereignty and their territorial integrity. And I um, just voted here in Congress uh, on a resolution in support of Ukraine. And I look forward to voting for uh, resources to back up our commitment to help the Ukrainian people. Is there more the United States uh, should be doing or could be doing to help the Ukrainians, the government and the Ukrainian people? There are a lot of people who talk about, oh, the United States, I think President Zelensky wants there to be a no-fly zone. Um, the president is doesn't want to do it, doesn't say that that's the right move. Your view on that? Well, a no-fly zone gets very complicated because the president has made clear he does not want U.S. troops facing off with Russian troops. And if you implement a no-fly zone, what that means is that you're going to have to enforce it. And that would put U.S. forces face-to-face -face with Russian forces. And that's not something that we're looking at right now. What I do think that we need to look at is to impose costs in all manners possible, diplomatic, uh, military, and economic. Um, and from the diplomatic perspective, I think we're doing a good job working with our allies, coordinating and standing strong and united as NATO against this aggression and supporting Ukraine. From a military perspective, we continue to provide supplies and military assets for the Ukrainians to be able to try to um, defend themselves. And, and we are already seeing uh, good progress on really trying to bring the Russian economy to its knees. And then from a social perspective as well, um, I advocated uh, to, you know, kick them out of the World Cup competition. It may seem like a small thing, but Russia and its people needs to understand that they will be a pariah if they continue to uh, advance this invasion of Ukraine. And so we're working on a lot of different um, fronts where we uh, can um, work together with our allies to impose costs on Russia for its mm -hmm. uh, violation of international norms. You know, one of the criticisms of President Biden's State of the Union address that I heard was that there was a lot of tough talk uh, about Russia, punishing Russia, making sure Russia pays for its invasion of Ukraine, and, and no um, reaching out to the Russian people and saying to the Russian people, you know, making a distinction between the Russian people and the Russian government. Do you think, do you think that the president should have extended that kind of rhetorical um, branch to the Russian people or was that not necessary? I think some of the imposing the cost, um, the Russian people will be impacted by that cost, but they also, um, it's part of the pressure campaign that the pressure needs to come from the outside and the inside on Putin to rethink this miscalculation of invading uh, Ukraine. And if the oligarchs and the uh, people of Russia uh, allow their government to invade Ukraine without any consequences, they won't speak up. They need to feel the impacts of their government's decisions and then choose to make their own choices about what they say and what they do within their own country. Um, the pressure needs to come from the inside and the outside. 
Are you surprised by the incredible unity that we have seen within NATO, within the European Union, the United Kingdom, um, the, the West against um, Russian President Vladimir Putin? Because the conventional wisdom is Putin thought that the alliance was fractured and that the alliance w wouldn't come together in the way that it has so quickly against him. Are you surprised by just how resolute the Western alliance has been against Putin? I am heartened. I worked at the Department of Defense in the early 2000s at a time when um, NATO was trying to figure out what its purpose was. They, you know, the, the threat wasn't as imminent as it was when uh, they were established and they were casting about, uh, you know, lots of conversation about what, what was the purpose of NATO. And um, I think in one fell swoop, Putin has managed to accomplish the absolute opposite of what he wanted. He wanted to push the U.S. out of Europe. And instead, the U.S. is deploying thousands of troops to Europe to deter further aggression and basically reassure our NATO allies. You know, he wanted to divide the NATO alliance and fracture U.S.-EU relations. And instead, as you said, he has unified these countries in an unpredictable and unprecedented way. Um, he wanted to quickly defeat Ukraine on the battlefield. And look, he is facing the kind of courageous resistance of freedom-loving people who are fighting to defend their country. They are putting up such a fierce fight and they're inflicting heavy damage on Russian forces and also exposing uh, for our purposes, the uh, shortcomings in the Russian military and their logistics challenges and other weaknesses that is important for us to know. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think Putin wanted to show that Russia was a global power and he wanted to reclaim something that never really was there for them. And instead, what he has done is he's made Russia a pariah nation and he's also deeply damaged the Russian economy. So I am heartened and encouraged by how uh, our allies have pulled together um, and freedom, freedom loving people around the world have showed up to provide support for the Ukrainian people. I'm gonna get you uh, one more question on this because I've got two big chunks of this interview that uh, two other topics that I wanna to get to. But you know, you mentioned that you, know, you were a national security specialist at the Department of Defense um, back in the day before you were a member of Congress. And I'm, I'm curious, how much damage did the previous administration do to the Western alliance by downplaying and bad-mouthing NATO, by not uh, actively um, saying that it would support Article 5 of the NATO, the NATO charter. Did that give, you think, President Putin a false sense of security that when push came to shove, the NATO alliance would not come together and respond in the way that it has? I certainly don't think that the last administration's coddling of Russia was uh, helpful on, on many fronts. But what I would say is that this administration stands in stark contrast to the last administration. Last night, we heard the president on the State of the Union affirm our commitment to Article 5. While there will not be troops deployed into Ukraine, he has made it very clear that we will defend every piece of territory under our NATO alliance. And we are sending forces there to 
make sure that Putin understands that we are serious about our commitment. I also think that this administration has done a good job in, diplomatically corralling all of our allies and leading. I'm somebody who believes that American leadership is so critically important in this world, and it's really heartening to see a change of pace. And I'll add that the last administration isn't done undermining um, our efforts to stand together in this moment of crisis in Europe. Uh, it is stunning to imagine that a former president would admire uh, President Putin and uh, Putin's uh, aggression against another nation um, in the aftermath of the invasion. When we look at the humanitarian catastrophe that is unfolding there and uh, these people fighting for their democracy. How can you stand on the side of Putin? Well, let's keep talking about, about him, meaning the, the, the former president of the United States and bring it closer to home. And that is the work that you're doing as a member of the January 6th Select Committee. Um, there were reports or talks that both Rudy Giuliani, who was Trump's personal attorney, and Ivanka Trump, uh, Donald Trump's daughter, have been in touch with the committee about uh, impending testimony or about whether they're going to testify. One, do you have any news on that? Uh, and two, do you really think that they'll actually come in voluntarily and testify? Well, I really appreciate your uh, question as it is among the questions all over DC media. Can you give me the dirt on what's going on with the committee? And the answers I- I don't want dirt, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just looking for answers. Yeah, well, well, we really need to protect the integrity of the investigation that we are conducting because um, it matters whether or not so somebody who's coming before our committee knows uh, what we know um, and so, we are being very deliberate about it. What I will say though, is that um, January 6th isn't too far afield from what we're talking about in Ukraine. Autocratic forces are on the march in the world today. And as Americans, we need to stand up and defend democracy, whether that is overseas or here at home. And a core tenant of our democracy here at home is a free and fair election and the ability for people to accept the results um, after they have exhausted the constitutionally accepted um, process. When we got to January 6th, um, the courts had already settled the cases. Um, we cannot uh, find ourselves in a situation where um, elected leaders find whatever um, loophole they can to try to hold on to power, because that makes us no better than any autocracy in this uh, world. And so what is at stake is democracy. And that's why it's so important as a member of the select committee that we protect the integrity of the investigation and, and not really comment on some of your questions. Chairman Benny Thompson was was here. Um, uh, I interviewed him and I asked him, you know, would there be televised hearings? He said yes, and that they would be in prime time. My question to you is when? We are still deep in the process of collecting the information and doing the investigation, but we also realize that we have the obligation and the opportunity to share the information that we have collected with the American people in a way that is um, 
consumable. I think too often up here in Washington, we talk in terms of reports, dense reports and, you know, uh, uh, legislative language, and we don't tell enough of the story. And so as a committee, we're committed to telling the story of how we found ourselves on the precipice, how we found our democracy on the precipice on January 6th, and how we can um, fix some of the weaknesses within our democracy. After all, we're ever evolving, and it is incumbent upon one generation after the next to reinforce our democracy and to ensure that no one strong man or uh, one strong uh, person can um, corrupt our constitution and undermine our democracy. As a member of the, the select committee, have you learned things? I'm not asking for specifics, but have you learned things that just made your jaw drop. Um, things that we don't, we in the in the general public don't know about. But you were there on January sixth. You're a, you're a member of Congress. Did you have you learned things that you didn't even know had happened or were happening, and you were when you were living it in real time? I absolutely have learned things that are. Uh, shocking and deeply, deeply disturbing. You have to understand that I came from a country um, that was a democracy until it wasn't. And when I was at the Department of Defense, I worked with countries around the world that were fledgling democracies who had situations like coups and, and had um, to work on bolstering their democracy. So I understand the fragility of our democracy. I don't take it for granted any day that I'm here, that I have the greatest privilege to live in the greatest country in the world, um, but that it is part of my responsibility to ensure that our next generation um, benefits from our economic system as well as our governance system if we can protect it. And so I do, um, I have learned some, some shocking things because we're looking at not just what happened on that day and of the people who are household names and their roles in this um, incident. We are also looking at the organizations and folks at the local and state level who had a role in trying to overturn a free and fair election. Um, we're looking at where the money is going. We're looking at how uh, disinformation played a part in this uh, setting up the scene for what happened on January 6th. There's a lot that we have learned um, through uh, the tens of thousands of documents that we have received, as well as the um, folks who have come before us and have been willing to provide testimony. Man, if, if, if you were shocked, then I, I am really, I'm a nerd, so I was already looking forward to the televised <laughs> hearings, but, but now I'm really interested. Um, so no matter, no matter what happens in the midterms, one of the, one of the big concerns is will the committee wrap up its investigations and everything in time for the midterms? Um, and I'll leave that to the side. But no matter what happens in the midterms, you will not be coming back to Congress. You are considered a rising star in the Democratic Party. So why did you decide not to run for reelection? Well, I am a working parent, uh, just like anybody else who's a working parent. And my husband works as well. And we have a seven and 11 year old. And 
you know, working parents sometimes have to make a decision between their professional ambitions and their personal responsibilities. And my kids are going through a stage that um, I really want to be there. I want to drive carpool. I want to know who their friends are. And that's really hard to do as a member who represents a swing district and in the house where you're in cycle pretty much all the time. Um, so I'm, I'm taking a beat, but I'm young enough, I think, by um, political terms to not rule <laughs> out um, uh, you know, some, some future at a later date when it makes more sense for my family. Senate, governor, well, I'll just say that Senate and governor isn't on the same two-year hamster wheel cycle, and um, it, it does provide a bit more stability than uh, the, the swing district in the U.S. House. But who knows? I left the Department uh, of Defense in 2008 with no real um, vision for how I would continue in public service, and I found my way back anyways. Um, <laughs> I owe this country a lot, so who knows? And you twice you've talked about the fact that you you represent a swing district. How much of the fact that it is a swing district? Did you look at you know the the impending campaign and think in this swing district, the district is going to swing away from me? And so why why go through that if I see that uh, I won't win re-election anyway? No, I honestly didn't. Um, this really is about a personal decision. You know, I ran a race, my first um, race. What people told me was an impossible race. I launched a four-month campaign against a 24-year Republican incumbent who had been the chair of a big committee. Um, and everybody, including the Democrats in my region, told me there is no way you're going to win. And yet we pulled it off anyways. And I've run tough races since, and I always overperform Democrats. And so I wasn't really worried about going into this cycle um, because I know that I work hard in my district, my brand is strong, and I, uh, I don't go by way of national trends. Okay, so since you're leaving, that means you can, you can uh, talk, uh, you know, real talk here. Um, okay. Right now you, you are a co-chair of the Blue Dot Coalition translation centrists, um, not you know the progressive end, not the conservative end, but right in the middle. Do you believe that the progressive wing in, of the Democratic Party has taken control of the party's agenda to the detriment of the Democratic Party? You know, I worry about moderates on both sides of the aisle in the next um, Congress. Um, both the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party have forces on the far left and the far right that are trying to co-op the uh, broad uh, part of their party. Um, instead of launching a third party, they figured it was just easier to take over uh, the um, conventional one. And so there are a lot of resources that are applied to um, ensure party unity. Just look at the 13 Republicans who dared to vote for clean water and safe roads and bridges. They received so much incoming from their own party um, and they are now being primaried like there's no tomorrow. Um, and then on the Democratic side, we're not immune from having outside groups come after the moderates. I'm worried that in the next Congress, um, these 
these forces will make it impossible for the shrinking number of moderates to reach across the aisle and work together. But as the president noted last night, a lot of his major achievements were led and pushed across the finish line by moderates and were bipartisan bills. Just take the infrastructure bill, for example. He lauded the um, impact that that bill has been having on districts all across this country. Well, that bill wouldn't have gotten across the finish line, but for moderates and people working in a bipartisan way to craft legislation that can improve the lives of American people. So I think post redistricting and some of these outside forces might uh, degrade Congress's ability to serve this country. And for that, I'm really worried. Um, what do you say to to um, the progressives who say, you know, all we're trying to do back then is protect and push forward the president's agenda as it was described then under Build Back Better um, during the during the State of the Union address. The president didn't use the words Build Back Better, but he talked about the individual pieces <laughs> of what used to be Build Back Better. Do you think that the president and that the the Democratic Party should go at it again by trying to get bits and pieces of what was known as Build Back Better, like the child income tax credit or health uh, child care, um, uh, uh, health care and things like that, get those done individually? I would say that I shared the same goal as my progressive colleagues and the White House, which is to get a bill across the finish line that, or bills across the finish line that had um, components of the president's um, uh, priorities. I, however, have a very pragmatic approach to legislating in Congress. And what I look at is what is the broadest set of common ground that we have that has 218 in the House and that can pass an evenly divided Senate. And, and if we have to scope our expectations to what has the votes, we should do that because at least then you would have a bill for the president to sign. What I'm hopeful about, because in the um, president's State of the Union, he mentioned a, a number of things that I think would have bipartisan support or at least be able to receive the 218 and make it through the Senate that we should move forward. I'm particularly um, pleased that he mentioned uh, the um, prescription drug piece that I worked hard on with a handful of other moderates to craft to a place that we thought um, would not only allow Medicare to negotiate, but also uh, cap insulin at $35. And that's something we should look at. What's your advice to the White House and, and the House Democrats if they want to hang on to the majority in the midterms? Stop showing up at a emotional, uh, um, uh, you know, painful conversation with constituents with data to try to convince them that what they're feeling mm -hmm. isn't true. Um, you know, whether it was inflation or the cost of gas or the rising cost of food or supply chain shortages that are impacting their ability to buy their kids the cleats they need to play soccer, whatever it is, we have to acknowledge that this is what the American people are going through and then work together to figure out ways to actually solve that problem instead of trying to convince them that it's not really happening. And I saw a bit of that uh, last night. It, 
the administration is acknowledging that infrastructure is an, I'm sorry, inflation is an issue. And um, the president laid out some ways in which he thought he could address it. And reasonable people can have debates about how we do that. But we have to um, borrow, in borrowing some uh, prior politicians word, feel people's pain and then work from there. Um, in the, I think, minute that we have left, um, so then does that, do I take from what you just said that you think that President Biden has his finger now on the pulse of the country and that his State of the Union address sort of demonstrated that he understands the pain that they're feeling at the kitchen table level? I was grateful to see that his State of the Union reflected a more pragmatic approach than the joint address from a year ago. And we're headed in the right direction. And he needs to know that he has allies here in Congress, moderates, progressives, Democrats, Republicans alike, willing to help him help the American people. Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy of Florida, thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.